1: Hi everyone, welcome to another very special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And today we're very proud to be joined by Valerio Romano. He is a very well-respected attorney in the cannabis space, not only here in Massachusetts, but also all the way to the left coast to California where he went to the University of San Francisco underground and undergrad, and also uh, to their law school. So Valerio, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks Jimmy, happy to be here with you virtually.
1: There you go. And that's the new normal these days, right? Is that when, it. <laughs> It's just the way everybody does business, I guess. Um, one of the first questions I want to kind of set you up is the fact that you were one of the co-authors of Question 4 in Massachusetts four years ago that led to the opening of the adult use legalization of cannabis in the Bay State. Writing a ballot question is a skill unto itself, and I know that in Nebraska, they could have used your strength and reputation and perhaps wordsmith because they had a ballot question and then was thrown out because of complications, I guess. Explain the challenges of writing a clear and concise ballot question for people to go in and check.
0: Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you. We wouldn't have been able to do it in Massachusetts without the Marijuana Policy Project, who's been a nationwide leader on ending cannabis prohibition, uh, really taking the lead. And you know, they're the fantastic drafters with incredible experience, helped us through the process in Mass. Uh, but one of the things we learned in Massachusetts, uh, there were many, there were many of us in the room when we put this together over the course of about a year, fundraising and a, otherwise. Uh, who really believed in the restorative social justice element uh, to ending cannabis prohibition and a good cannabis law should address that, those realities. Unfortunately, in Massachusetts, one of the things that uh, we confronted was the single subject rule uh, for cannabis, ending cannabis prohibition and drafting a ballot initiative. And that's exactly what happened uh, in Nebraska as well. So, you know, the, the basics of that law was to, you uh, Give a constitutional right for people with serious medical conditions to medically use cannabis, uh, subject to a recommendation by a physician, cultivate it, produce it. Um, But there are other aspects uh, to the rule, which unfortunately ran afoul of that. Well, the courts at the end decided ran afoul of that single subject rule. And, you know, unfortunately, those aspects were providing access to the cannabis by those that weren't the patients, creating a private right to cultivate it. But also... Uh, tangential things like smoking cannabis in public, uh, operation of motor, v- motor vehicles while impaired with cannabis, prohibiting those things. So the court struck down that rule, I think, or that, that law. And I think, or didn't you actually allow it to get on the ballot? And I think uh, the point here is that prohibitionists will grasp at anything to stop cannabis legalization. And frequently the prohibitionists uh, are not just those with, you know, a moral issue with cannabis or who believe wrongly that it's a gateway drug, but actually people with a financial interest in in cannabis prohibition, alcohol lobby, pharmaceutical. And if you look at those who put money into Massachusetts when we were waging our battle, it was alcohol lobby. Uh, And so, uh, you know, that's what you'll see. And that's a big problem that happens. So you really have to be attentive and careful when drafting these laws.
1: And of course, speaking of laws uh, over the past weekend, uh, the United States of House of Representatives on Friday passed the Moore Act. And you mentioned immediately the tie between the legalization of this plant for either medicinal purposes or adult use purposes, but also the expungement of all those records and cannabis arrests and cannabis possession arrests specifically. And One thing that I have learned over the two years of doing interviews is this really isn't a drug issue. It truly is a civil rights issue. And the two are intertwined. Do you agree with that?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and and there's people approach this industry, particularly lawyers from different perspectives. Right. So when I started in California, I started doing I started out doing criminal defense. And some of the people that you know, I, I represented or our office represented, uh, particularly in federal court, uh, didn't have a lot of defense uh, to cannabis use or to cannabis cultivation. Uh, and so these are the people uh, that really paved the way for the industry as we know it. And they, they paved the way with their liberty. Uh, you know, We had people who did 10 years uh, for cultivating cannabis, completely nonviolent crimes, no guns around. Uh, No allegation that they were selling cannabis to children, you know, or minors, just merely cultivating cannabis uh, landed them in, you know, 10 years with minimum mandatory. And, uh, you know, the social justice uh, and civil rights issue, it's it's beholden on all of us who represent folks in the industry to represent those people, people with criminal convictions in cannabis as well, and not just look for the biggest pockets, the deepest pockets to represent. But really, you know, unlike some uh, attorneys who approach this, we really want to make sure that we represent people who pave the way for this industry. And a criminal history in cannabis should not be something that dissuades someone from representing that individual in the industry, because they're the ones who made it possible for all of us.
1: And I think the stat is well over 511,000 cannabis arrests in the United States in 2019, And about 486,000 violent arrests have nothing to do with cannabis. So the fact that they're still arresting people, especially people of color, for cannabis possession crimes in 2019 still is kind of a really horrific statistic that I know a lot of people are trying the best that they can uh, to change that schedule and also to change the law, even though the Moore Act was symbolic in effect because we all both recognize that it's not gonna get very far if it even gets to the front door of the US Senate. Um, was it still worth it to take that vote, to send a message to the people that uh, the uh, House of Representatives anyway understands that 68% of Americans want this plant legalized?
0: Yeah, when almost 70% of Americans you know, support legalization uh, you know, even it's the majority of Republicans support legalization. Uh, it's you know, it's really hard to not take that sort of vote in the House of Representatives. But unfortunately, in the House, it was basically on party lines. Just a few people on each side crossed uh, crossed over. You know, people of color are three to five, three to four times more likely to be arrested for a cannabis crime where uses are the same, you know. And so I think it was absolutely critical that, that the House uh, took that vote. And unfortunately, you know, at the U.S., you know, at the Senate level, uh, you know, we have Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Todd Young who sort of, you know, criticize and sort of laugh at the whole thing. Uh, but even Republicans who support, you know, cannabis legalization, uh, like Matt Gates from Florida, uh, he, you know, he sort of poo-poo's the social restorative justice elements of the law. So, you know, even though you have support, you don't have the support for the other critical parts of it.
1: Why? Why do people want to still get into the cannabis business right now, Valerio? With all these regulations, all the compliance issues, it's still a Schedule One drug as of today. Why are people lining up with their checkbooks trying to get into this business?
0: Well, I wish more people were lining up with their checkbooks. You know, <laughs> financing can be the hardest part of the industry, right? Fin- particularly in Massachusetts, financing and acquisition of property for retail can be the hardest part uh, and, and local permitting. But, you know, I mean, there's this perception of a green rush, uh, you know, and so there, there's that idea that, that there's so much money in it. And unfortunately, cities and towns and, and, and also the states have the same perception. Right. And so they think there's all this money and anybody's getting in it is going to be flush uh, until, you know, the federal prohibition on taking regular business deductions to 80 goes away. Uh, there isn't this greenwash. There isn't this incredible amount of money. And, and, and municipalities and states who have been locking people up for decades for paying their bills with cannabis, uh, as Dave Chappelle said, shouldn't be now paying their bills with cannabis uh, until we get a real a real change. Um, but some people also are really dedicated to the plant and they love cultivating it and this is really important part of their lives it's uh you know and so there's that aspect to it i mean so many growers want to get involved within massachusetts you call it a tier one grow but you know five thousand square foot or less grow and they just don't realize how much it's actually going to cost to open at the end of the day between state local licensing building out the grow and compliance with the state regulations including security so it's really expensive but then it's also a really interesting industry as well. I mean, if, you're in, if you know about retail, branding, there's incredible amounts of science involved with it. So for those, for those that want to run a, a very sort of complex and interesting business that allows them to create these fantastic brands, uh, it also, you know, attracts those folks. Uh, and then there's a lot of people who just don't get it either, right? If you ever go to a cannabis convention uh, or, or meet people who are getting in, they just have no business sense whatsoever. So, uh, so, that, so that's the other reason people get in because they don't know what they're getting into. And when I speak with new clients, I, you know, I always tell them it's going to take you know, four times longer and cost four times as much uh, to get involved in this industry as they might think. And that, I think that's critical.
1: And I think it's also very interesting to point out, uh, because even those of us who may not be the smartest or the sharpest business people and are involved with MRBs, marijuana-related businesses, don't realize that even though you aren't a plant-touching business, if you are still taking cash or any kind of remuneration from those that are in the plant touching side of the business, you're still considered part of the business and you can't do banking in the United States. Uh, That was one of those, oh, um, I don't know, maybe it's a rite of passage that my company had to go through uh, within the last year. But I I do feel like now I've, I've lost my cherry. I'm part of the business. I embrace it. But I do worry about the money grab. I'm worried about how, yes, I recognize how challenging it is to build capital and and how uh, many injustices have been and how many barriers to entry there have been for those who have been most affected by the war on drugs. But in a capitalist society, Valerio, money dictates a lot of direction of business and politics. Can cannabis as we know it survive Oh, absolutely.
0: Well, first of all, on the banking issue, there are some banks, you know, Century Bank in Massachusetts was foremost, but there are others that are jumping on. You don't have the robust suite of banking services, but you have a checking account, you have payroll, uh, you know, the cannabis businesses have access to you for their their customers to use debit, uh, you know. uh, So so there is some banking, but there isn't the traditional loans that you might might get, you know, uh, and there's also this federal tax issue. But I think it absolutely can survive. I mean, there's great momentum at the federal level. Uh, We, you know, we now have a president-elect who uh, may be more willing uh, to move this type of legislation forward. Uh, we could see what's going to happen in Georgia. Uh, you know, there's a couple really important Senate seats up, uh, you know. And so, I, I mean, I have a lot of faith. Uh, and particularly when 280E, uh, that federal prohibition on regular business deductions, uh, internal revenue code section 280E, when that goes away, which the Moore Act would effectively do, And there are other there are other attempts to do it safe banking Uh, that would uh, make a huge difference. And I I have a lot of faith and I think that cannabis uh, will survive both for small operators as well as larger multi state operators.
1: Yeah, and that, that's really the, the follow up question I had is, can MSOs, multi state operators, and craft farmers, small mom and pop type operators uh, survive? And is there an equal and level playing field uh, inside each state wherever they both exist?
0: Well, I can't speak to all states, uh, but, you know, Massachusetts and California, where I'm barred, uh, where I'm an attorney, um, I think they can, actually. I mean, ComCan in Massachusetts is a great example. A brother and sister started this business, no multi-state operator affiliation, and they're largely thought of as the best cannabis operator in the state. Uh, you know, And so, uh, you know, they can survive. Um You know, and they can actually work together. I mean, multi-state operators have taken a big hit in the last few years with the capital markets falling apart. And so, I mean, you can look at stock prices, uh, you know, and the availability of funds and and what the multi-state operators uh, are able to do, particularly in Massachusetts. Uh, So, you know, I, I think they can survive. But the important thing is to allow them to work together. And so, multi-state operators uh, were particularly interested in Massachusetts and infusing capital into the industry. If it costs, you know, a minimum of a few million dollars, you know, if we call it five million dollars to open up, you know, twenty-five thousand square feet of cultivation, and we need, you know, maybe six million square feet to actually satisfy the demand, and we probably have three hundred and fifty thousand square feet of operating operational cultivation today, there's a long way to go. And we need that money to come in. And unfortunately, what happened in Massachusetts is any multi-state operator who tried to invest in the industry was looked at, you know, almost sternly and and with a lot of skepticism. And the the Boston Globe was beating them up. And and I worked uh, with those operators during that time. And I didn't know of one financing or loan agreement where that multi-state operator was trying to take advantage of the smaller business person who was trying to get in the industry. Uh, They were all incredibly fair, uh, reasonable, reflected fair market value terms uh, for cannabis contracts and really Massachusetts blew it. We had the opportunity for these operators to come in and infuse the hundreds of millions of dollars of capital that we needed and we chased them out of the state. And I'm hoping that future jurisdictions that come online uh, don't make the same mistake because that's why there's very few cannabis licenses given to social equity and economic empowerment applicants. There's very few open nationwide. It's like 4% of these businesses. And so we really need to make an effort to allow the multi-state operators uh, who come in with good intentions to invest in this industry. And this is really the shortcoming of all these restorative justice uh, elements of any law. And the MORAC tried to address it, right? There's this 5% uh, of sales that go into this fund that's supposed to uh, infuse capital into these communities that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. And so we, we're failing at that in Massachusetts incredibly, despite the lip service that's given to that.
1: Did the delivery license element and initiative by the Cannabis Control Commission to give a three-year advantage to social equity applicants for those delivery licenses, is that good enough, Valerio? No,
0: no. The delivery licenses in Massachusetts, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, there's this big big scare of the existing licensed operators that the delivery licenses are going to give this incredible advantage uh, to folks who haven't had to go through the hurdles and the work and spend the money, but no. The delivery license in Massachusetts needs to have a brick and mortar. They need to have a warehouse. They need to follow all the security regulations. The cities and towns, in order to site one of these warehouses, tip it almost universally, with very few exceptions, have a special permit requirement. You need to hire engineers and architects to apply for your special permit. You need to, you know, provide engineer engineered plans, site plans. You need to hire counsel. There's incredibly, you know, stringent and confusing regulations surrounding the delivery licenses. We're waiting the final version to come out, um, from the department of regulations. So you need special permit property acquisitions, security, you know, to open, even open one of these warehouse, uh, deliveries, 500,000, $700,000 all day long. It's not this thing where somebody who has, you know, access to twenty 25- five. With them and their brother uh, can get into this industry. It's far, far more than that, uh, you know. And the, the commission, unfortunately, so it's great they've reduced the license fees for these delivery licenses in, in, in their new vote uh, passing these regulations a few days ago. But unfortunately, it's not nearly enough. What we need uh, is this fund. That's going to loan money at maybe even interest free terms to these operators uh, so that they can or, or, uh, you know, so they can get involved in the industry. And that's what the Moore Act uh, attempts to do. And that's really if you want to have this restorative justice approach to the industry, you need to be able to do that because the delivery licenses, the wholesale delivery license particularly, is not one that's going to allow access to the industry.
1: Um, In California, the other state that you are licensed to practice law in, recently a lawsuit was brought against, I believe it was the Cannabis Control Commission or the California Board of Cannabis or whatever the heck they call the thing out there, but um, they took down billboards. They're now not allowing dispensaries or operators to use billboards to push out their messages. Um, I was kind of surprised at this. And then sure enough, when you drive through Massachusetts, you do see billboards. What's your feeling about billboards as really the only traditional media access that the cannabis industry has to a major audience, a lot of eyeballs?
0: Yeah, sure. So the, uh, the Bureau of Cannabis Control in California had determined that you know, billboards would be available as long as they were at least 15 miles from a border. Uh, and unfortunately, um, what what they did was they, the the ballot initiative that ended cannabis prohibition in California pretty much expressly prohibited billboards, and the uh, BCC essentially uh, through regulation rewrote the ballot initiative. And uh, in California, legislators uh, cannot substantially amend a ballot initiative. The voters will trumps period. If you look at what happened in Massachusetts after we passed question 4 in 2016, it was quite the opposite. Uh, the legislature completely rewrote the ballot initiative uh, you know uh, that, that the voters had passed. So in Massachusetts you don't have the same rule. So uh, what happened in California doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily automatically going to happen in Massachusetts. Uh, my thought on billboards is that they're fine. I, you know, I don't want, um, billboards that I mean, I'm, I'm raising three boys in Massachusetts, right. I don't want my kids to, you know, be stoners in, in high school. Right. I, I, so I don't want billboards for anything, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, whatever. I don't want any advertising that, you know, uh, Un, unjustly, you know, glorifies or makes it look cool to, you know, to use any particular substance. So that I think that's the issue with billboards. But in Massachusetts, there's a, you know, there's a particular rule in Massachusetts that prohibits advertising on billboards unless at least 85% of the target audience is reasonably expected to be 21 years or over. And can you say that for any billboard? I don't know, right? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's hard. Um, I think it's hard. I remember in Quincy, uh, uh, there was a billboard that was a can. A, a can- um, I'm sorry. A, a, uh- uh, there was a billboard showing about 25% fewer opioid mortalities is what, is what it talked about. Uh, and it, and it, had, it cited the law and the, the, site, the, the study from the American Medical Association. And that billboard was forced to be taken down because uh, neighbors didn't like it. And so, I, you know, I'm a, I, I support billboards. I support advertising. I just think that it's important how you do the advertising so as not to make it look, you know, cooler to, to use cannabis for younger people.
1: Uh, And I will say this about younger people and their job, as you know, is to push up against those barriers that we older people put on them. And that includes our laws. That includes the rules inside your house. It includes uh, all those rules and regulations that kids are always going to push the envelope up against and see what they can get away with. That is the nature of growing up. Mommy and daddy tell you, don't touch that stove. It's hot. You're going to still want to know what does hot really feel like, right? So you're going to touch the stove quickly just to see. That is the nature of it. As a parent, it is also a great opportunity to talk to your children, not just about cannabis, but about all the adult-use products out there and why they're for adults only. Do you see this as an opportunity to do such a thing?
0: Uh, I mean, absolutely. Look, it's... it's, It's up to adults to lock up their drugs, whether it's prescription medication uh, or whether it's cannabis uh, or alcohol. It's up to us to keep those things from being accessible to our kids. And if we can't take that responsibility on our own shoulders, uh, then we're the ones who are failing the kids, uh, not the other way around.
1: It it always comes back to the toughest job any of us ever have or had, which is uh, being a parent, right, right,
0: But it's also the
1: most rewarding. That's a great, and that's a great way to wrap this thing up. Valerio Romano, what a pleasure it is to talk with you again. I so uh, give you the most... All the luck in the world in your new venture, back out on your own again. You're the boss, right? Your name's on that billboard on the uh, on the it. office in, in Boston. So, you know, you still have to clean those toilets if they need to be cleaned, right Valerio?
0: <laughs> well, everything's virtual these days, but that's right, Jimmy, <laughs> thank you very much.
1: All right, so for Valerio Romano, I'm Jimmy Young. Thanks for watching In The Weeds. Remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Now, We Talk News and In the Weeds are all available on most major podcast distributors like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our friends at CLNSmedia.com and our flagship, Cannabis.net. So, subscribe, share, and like our videos on all the social media networks out there, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, The Weed Tube, and YouTube. Comes first.
0: We are pro cannabis media.